My name is Frederick Agerman. I have a master's degree in human nutrition from the University of Copenhagen. You're listening to my new podcast series on understanding the human biological system and using that understanding to pursue better health, well-being, and performance. Welcome to the very first episode. What you're about to hear is a conversation between Martin Kremer and myself on blood sugar, why it matters, who it matters to, and how to control it. We will be drawing on both published scientific literature and our own experiences with measuring blood sugar. Martin is the founder of the Danish biohacker community, which he created back in 2014. By the time this launches, he will have delivered his first TEDx talk, which, by the way, I'm really looking forward to experience. Martin is a great facilitator, a true enthusiast with regards to using both nature and technology to get most out of life. He's a catalyst in Copenhagen for spreading these ideas and making things happen. Martin and I are both located in the greater Copenhagen area. For those of you who don't know, Copenhagen is the capital of IKEA. Before we jump into the episode, I just quickly want to make some things clear. In the episode today, we're talking about two different measures of blood glucose. We're talking about fasting blood sugar, which is a marker of insulin resistance and energy balance. And you want to aim for levels around 4.4 to 5.2 millimoles per liter. That's 80 to 94 milligrams per deciliter for the Americans. And the other measurement we're talking about is blood sugar after meals and throughout the day. This is also a measure of insulin resistance, but also what and how much you eat, when and how much you move, and specific reactions to your meals and foods, which can be quite individual. You want to avoid high peaks, large fluctuations, and a high mean. In other words, lower and stable levels are desirable. High peaks and large variation can lead to morbidity and microvascular damage, meaning damage to the small blood vessels. This can lead to the complications that are typically seen in type 2 diabetes, like damage to the eyes, kidneys, and the peripheral nervous system. It isn't quite as clear what numbers to aim for here, but between 3.9 and 6.7 millimoles per liter or 71 to 120 milligrams per deciliter for the majority of a 24 hour period. And a return to baseline levels at latest two hours after eating is probably a good place to aim for. So with that out of the way, let's get to the episode. In a moment, you'll hear Martin asking me a question, and when you do, you'll know the episode has begun. Well, let's start with the basics um, and, and really just like boil it down for us. What is blood sugar? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good place to start. Um, so, so blood sugar is just the amount of normally, so what we'll be talking about if we, we use medical terms would be blood glucose. So that's specifically the amount of uh, the, the sugar molecule, the monosaccharide, that means it's just one ring of, of, a, of a sugar molecule. It's the most simple sugar molecule, class of sugar molecules you can imagine. So it's, it's just the amount of glucose in the blood. 
And that's not a huge amount, but it's an important amount. And any uh, any vacillations, any changes in that amount going up or going down can be very important uh, for our health. Um, especially if they go down, um, it can it can actually be be quite dangerous, as I think most people know from some, from type one diabetics. Um, if they get what they call a hypo, so that's a, a low. Um, it can actually be uh, it can actually be deadly. Um, now that's not relevant for uh, for most people, but it just sets the stage that this is really really important. Actually, now for most people, what's what what can be problematic is if they have um, too large uh, changes in in blood sugar going up and down, and if mm. they have on average too high blood glucose. So most people who are not type one diabetic um, will will not uh, have huge problems with getting too low blood glucose and are not uh, at risk of dying from too low blood glucose. But they so what? Oh, sorry. Yeah. So, so to interrupt you because I mean this is sure. this is this brings back memories from my childhood, right? When you know my mom used to give me these these kind of um, fructose tablets. I think they were just kind of to spike my blood sugar because probably dextrose. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. That's it, right? And I I'd always carried them with me just because she'd somehow heard that well, if I lacked energy, I should take that. It was to kind of. I guess amp up my blood sugar levels right, in school right. and stuff like that. Yeah, and you, you... now we, we obviously learned a lot since then, and I'm sure we're <laughs> going to get into that. Yeah. But so, so why and what kind of how is it that we generate these fluctuations in blood sugar? But what actually makes it spike? As an example, okay, that's a that's a good question. Just just uh, to go back, just a slight step here. So so I said dextrose, which is not incorrect, but it, that's more or less just another name for glucose. So just so everybody mm. gets what we're saying, and to put things in in, in context here, when you have normal uh, table sugar, we're talking about sucrose, which is a right. disaccharide. So it has two di for two two uh, of these uh, blue, uh, sorry, um, sugar rings, uh, carbon rings, mm -hmm. one uh, part glucose and one part fructose. Anyway, so that's just to put things in, in, in perspective. So, so your question was, what influences glucose level, basically? <clears throat> what is it that makes it uh, change? And, and the short answer is there is a, well, the short answer is eating things that can be converted into glucose. Um, so that's mostly carbohydrate. But it's also possible to convert um, amino acids from from protein, um, and and actually also part of fat. Um, but but mostly it's carbohydrate. Um, the extent, however, to which it influences so so the um, so so when you eat carbohydrate, um, it will be absorbed in the small intestine, and then it will be um, then it will go into the bloodstream. And, and your blood sugar will rise, your blood glucose will rise. We're just going to say blood sugar from now on. But we're talking mm -hmm. about blood glucose. So blood glucose, your blood sugar will rise. And and then it will be, uh, insulin will rise and be allocated to, to different, uh, different cells throughout your body. Um, so carbohydrate, eating carbohydrate makes it go up and then also down further down the time timeline. Um, but how much it goes up is influenced by a lot of different factors and probably also unknown factors. But things like 
how long has it been since you last slept? Have you gotten enough sleep? Or are you stressed for some other reason than lack of sleep? Um, how 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 much um, how how well fed are you? Are you if you're overfed, uh, your cells are already bursting with energy. They'll have a hard time taking up the glucose. They won't want to. It won't be in the best interest of the cells in in, in that case. And then you're hmm. a very simple version of it, but that's at least part of the reason why people become insulin resistant. They um, and then have a hard time taking up glucose and taking it out we've of the established what blood sugar is but just let's for the sake of, of the full understanding here let's just talk a little bit about like how does it actually get converted from glucose into glycogen which is what we are storing in our muscles and our liver to then use as energy what's that mechanism and then obviously people are thinking insulin right but just tell me kind of in a layman terms uh how does that conversion happen Right, right. So, so we're talking about yeah, blood glucose, and and it uh, basically, I think I mentioned that you eat some carbohydrate. It's uh, it's typically it's it's broken down into a simple sugar like glucose uh, in the stomach and the and the small intestine. Then in the small intestine, it's absorbed through the intestinal wall into the bloodstream. Your blood glucose rises in response to that. If you're not type one diabetic. Then your um, then your your pancreas, uh, the beta cells in your pancreas produces insulin, which will then be secreted into your bloodstream. Insulin then tells the insulin is a is a hormone, um, and it has the function of facilitating different nutrients, but especially glucose being um, being taken up by cells throughout the body. So. What happens is your insulin, as your glucose rises, your insulin uh, in the blood will also rise in, in response to that in order to make sure that your glucose doesn't get too high. Now, in in uh, normally fat and healthy individual, then this will usually happen pretty effectively. Um, what's going to happen is that the cells throughout your body will... Um, will have they have insulin receptors uh, on them, and uh, insulin will bind to those receptors, and this means that the uh, this re- facilitates that um, that glucose is then taken up by these cells. They 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 let it pass into their uh, into through their membrane, and and it's transported in by uh, uh, different systems such as what's called GLUT four, for instance, um, into the cell. And um, and then the cell will will be using it for energy directly, or maybe it's being stored in, as you mentioned, as as glycogen. So which is just like these long chains, what's called polymers. So that's just long chains of uh, glucose molecules that are connected. So it's basically starch, human starch, in the uh, either in the muscle cells or or in the liver, um, or rather both. And uh, or it's being used directly by different cells. Let's say the brain uses a lot of glucose, as, um, for instance. Um, and but if you have if you have a lot of cells that are already filled with a lot of energy, let's say they all already have glycogen or they already have a lot of um, or fat, for instance, uh, in them, they don't need any more uh, energy. And maybe even uh, maybe it might even be bad for them to take up more energy. 
then they uh, they won't respond to that insulin, um, and uh, or at least it will take a lot more insulin for them to to respond, and then you're insulin resistant if you have a lot of these cells. So the direction of your blood glucose, whether it goes up or down, is is to a large extent determined by whether you eat carbohydrate, but the um, to what degree it goes up or down is is also influenced by a lot of other factors. But we'll get back to yeah, that. Yeah, I'm sure but we, that's, I, uh, I got so, a lot of questions on that because, I mean, and a lot of listeners, I'm sure, have heard about these biohacks for how you can either lower your, your blood sugar or stabilize it, right? But let's talk a little bit about why is this relevant for, for our health? And like, you know, obviously for some, it's more relevant than others. But generally speaking, you know, why is, is a stable or low blood sugar relevant for our health? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a very important question to to answer, and I think I think this has been somewhat misunderstood in the uh, in the public, mm-hmm. both why is it relevant and who's it relevant for. So I think most people would think about blood glucose, blood sugar being something that's relevant for people with diabetes, type one especially, type two diabetes, of course. Maybe people have heard of prediabetes. Maybe they have some sort of uh, intuition that if you are overweight, then blood glucose is also a risk factor, and that plays a maybe also a role in in gaining weight and lowering it is uh, in, in in losing that extra fat. Um, the truth is that it now, when you look at the scientific evidence now, it 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 very much seems that blood glucose regulation is relevant for everybody. So we have these, um, some of them fairly new, a couple of years old uh, studies um, with uh, fasting glucose and that we'll get back to this, but this isn't even the the most sensitive um, measurement of how how good your glucose uh, regulation is. Um, But fasting glucose is, uh, is correlated. So that's the glucose you would have in the morning after not eating for at least eight hours, maybe 10, 12, it's a little bit different from when you get out of bed, how you, how you basically, when you get out of bed in the morning, haven't eaten for a while, what does your, what's your blood glucose look like? And, uh, it turns out there's a, there's what, what's called a J shaped curve. So it, um, at the very low end, if you have very low glucose, that's associated with a slight increase in, in mortality in these studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, meaning there's a, during the, the, uh, the length of the study, the, they typically that might be 10, 15 years, uh, that they follow these patients. There's an increase that risk of, uh, of the patients dying if they have very low blood glucose. But mostly, the most of the increased risk of dying in this time span is is found at the other end of having high blood glucose. Right. Um, so that definitely goes for anybody who has uh, diabetes, um, but it also goes for uh, people with what's called prediabetes, which are uh, can be determined. Uh, one way of determining that is is looking at their fasting glucose values. Um, but it also it's also actually when you have enough people in these studies goes further down and we we're actually at a place now where the the um the cutoff point is so low that actually most people have uh higher levels than what is optimal what has the lowest uh associated mortality so this is this is all cause mortality let me just repeat that are you saying that it's becoming the norm that most people have higher levels of blood sugar than what would be optimal 
Yeah. So, so what I'm not saying is necessarily, I'm not, I wasn't necessarily commenting on an increase in blood glucose, but just because this could be misunderstood, mm -hmm. um, that may or may not be true. Uh, but what I'm saying is that the it's it's now been established that uh, we begin to see an increased mortality at something like five five point two five point three millimoles per liters of fasting blood glucose, which is fairly low. It's it's there's going to be a lot of people who have blood glucose like that. So so it, it, this the data is now sensitive enough that we can see that. It dysregulated blood glucose down to a very, very early stage where it's not even that bad compared to most people still carries an increased risk mm -hmm. compared to what's optimal. So optimal range, we, we might as well get into that now. We, we don't know for sure, but it looks like it's roughly, um, and this is the waking fasting blood glucose we're talking about roughly 4.5 millimoles per liter to five, maybe 5.3, but at least at 5.5, we're beginning to see increased mortality, um, maybe a little bit lower than that. And you're talking uh, so in millimole per liter, yeah? Millimoles per liter. So we convert that to, to what the Americans use. Uh, you just multiply it by 18. Now oh. I'm not just... Yeah, just just do that in your head. Now that would be um, roughly eighty-one to ninety uh, milligrams per deciliter. Um, so again, uh, ninety milligrams per deciliter uh, is five millimoles per per liter. So ninety, ninety-five, um, you're probably okay. Um, but if we start seeing above ninety-five, we see hundred or something. You're actually, I mean, there's actually you might be normal, but it's not optimal. Right. Um, there is an increased risk of, of, uh, of dying, um, within that time span. Uh, so, so yeah, so that is, um, so that's, so the, so the point here is that this is relevant for everybody. Um, if almost uh, a majority of the population could, uh, could probably, uh, really benefit from having a better blood glucose control than they do. Um, so that's very interesting, I think. Well, that's the thing, right? That, you know, when we talk about biohacking and, and, you know, people really taking responsibility for themselves and their health and, and, and I mean, it's, it's the barrier of entry here is really, really low. I mean, a glucose uh, monitor or a glucometer, as they're called, anybody can pick them up in the pharmacy down, you know, down the street for yeah. a couple of hundred yeah. kroners or, you know, on Amazon for $20 or whatever, right? So it's, it's an inexpensive way to actually take a take a step into trying to control your health in a way. So exactly. And, and you're actually getting valuable data. You're actually getting uh, real insights into uh, biomarkers that predict your long-term health. Um, yeah. Even if you're, uh, even if you're better than the average person, this could still be a relevant pathway for you to go down and optimize. So I, I, I want to ask you about like the, the, what is, in your opinion, the right protocol here when you do that, right? So one, we've talked about the fasting, uh, you know, glucose, that's obviously really, really important. But what about your body's response system? Like your, your obviously insulin plays a role here. And we need to talk a little bit about what an insulin is, obviously. But what would, in your opinion, be the right protocol to, to run yourself through? Um, I mean, you can read about a whole bunch of tests where you go fasting block glucose in the morning then you go about your your normal routine you eat your meals and so on and then you measure 
right after the meal, you know, half an hour after the meal, or an hour after the meal, and so on. And there are lots of like different protocols there. But what, in your view, is is the good way to do this to see whether you have a an appropriate response to the carbohydrates that that you eat, and and start to I guess also understand the difference in the carbohydrates, which we'll get back to later. But there's a huge difference in whether you're eating, you know. Uh, you know, cold rice, you know, from the day before, or, you know, mm. freshly boiled rice, right? So the, the starch is, is changing its kind of chemistry there, and that impacts how you react to it. So we'll get into that. But tell me first, what's your best protocol for measuring this if you really want to see your response system? Mm, yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, so so what we want to let's start by just making sure we, we know what, what it is we want to find out. So we want to see what is our fasting glucose. Um, and then we might also, if we want to get go a step beyond that, then we might, as, as you were talking about, want to see what is our body's response to eating different carbohydrate sources or different meals. So so let's say carbohydrate source, that could be rice, as you mentioned. It could be bananas. It could be um, uh, drinking uh, soda pop. It could be... Um, eat pasta, um, oranges. Um, so we might want to see how do we react to different foods, uh, different amounts of foods. Um, does it, does it vary with, uh, whether we're eating, um, other foods first, let's say, uh, does it matter if you're eating, um, vegetables or maybe, uh, eating some meat before you're, uh, you're eating carbohydrates. So to test your, uh, your fasting waking uh, glucose. Um, this is probably the easiest, and um, uh, and it's it's somewhat somewhat valuable. Um, so so basically, what you need to make sure is you're fasted, um, meaning you you've not eaten for such a long while that you your blood glucose has more or less stabilized at a, a pretty low and again yeah stable level. So usually at least eight hours. Um, you might even go for 10 or 12 hours. Make sure you decide beforehand how many hours you need to be minimally fasted so that you can repeat that the next time so you can compare. Uh, mm-hmm. You want to be able to see, make sure that your uh, blood glucose that you measured, uh, you're measuring tomorrow is comparable to what you're going to be measuring in a month or in three months so that you can see any... Uh, uh, any changes um, and, and have an idea of, um, of what di- which direction things are going. Uh, you also need to acknowledge that none of these readings are going to be precise enough that you can really do with just um, one reading and then comparing it to one half a year later. And then I, there would have to be quite a difference for it to be, you to be sure that it wasn't some sort of some sort of uh, random event that was playing into it that you were more stressed so or you want to do it multiple days is what you're yeah so you probably want to do it it's a bit like uh if you get on the scale there's going to be things especially if you're a woman who's menstruating there's going to be things that are affecting your weight that's not what we're looking for with the glucose um so there's going to be some random variation uh that's mm. just the the way it is uh, unfortunately um and even you want to make sure you're using the same uh, glucometer, the same the measurement device, and and so on. Anyway, so so you make sure you're fasted. Um, do it do it overnight. Uh, I uh, if you can go for ten to twelve hours, but at least eight hours. Um, and and write that down. Um, try to do it um, in the morning um, at the same time every time. So don't like 
do it at seven once and then do it at uh, 10 o'clock the next time. Um, before you measure, get up, go out, pee, whatever you have to do. Hydrate, so drink, uh, measure, same amount of water every time. Just sit for maybe 15 minutes and then measure your uh, your fasting blood glucose with a finger prick. And you can just look that up on, on, on YouTube. We don't need to go into the details of how you prick your finger. Uh, that's better done in a video, but... Um, but but it's that's that's just fairly simple. Uh, write it down immediately, or maybe your your uh, glucometer or your app has a has an automatic uh, data saving function. Um, so, so I record me... mine in in uh, in chronometer, um, which which can which save a lot of your biomarkers. It's a it's a food yeah. locking app, but also can save you can basically save a lot of your other. Uh, Let's, let's put a link to that on. one in, in the show notes. I think it's a good one. Yeah, for yeah, yeah. That's away. a really good one to know. Yeah. But I, I have a question there. I want to ask you this because at, uh, one of my um, one of my clients who's, who's like trying to control blood sugar and, and really living a, a low carb life. Um, I mean, this thing about measuring faster in the morning. You said you know eight hours right. better if it's twelve. Getting out of bed, drinking water—that's all great. But I, I know that there is a spike in blood sugar, you know, due to the rise in cortisol, right? As you get out of bed and so on. So, is that what you're aiming at here? Or, it, for instance, could you also go about dropping off your kids at school and then come back and then do the test if you don't? You I mean, don't do I mean, yeah. The there are different there. So there are a lot of different things that that influence blood glucose and and other hormones than 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 the yeah. usual suspects like insulin. Um, so yeah, for instance, uh, cortisol in the morning, and we'll get a little bit into melatonin, which is sort of a, the the other side of that uh, um, twenty four hour circadian rhythm thing that so, also so that goes on with glucose. But, but the reason I'm saying, uh, sorry, so, so an increase in cortisol would would increase your your blood glucose on on the measurement, or uh, yeah, yeah. So okay. if you have higher uh, cortisol levels, then typically you'll also have higher, uh, higher glucose. Uh, so that's one of the things So cortisol is what's called, uh, the class of hormones that are called, uh, glucocorticoid. Um, mm-hmm. and these, these hormones, um, one of the things that they do is they facilitate basically the opposite of insulin. They facilitate, uh, glycogen. So that's the amount, that's the, the kind of uh, carbohydrate that humans store in their liver and in our uh, in our muscle. So, glucocorticoids like cortisol will facilitate breakdown of glycogen in the liver. So, this is being broken down into glucose, which is then being released into the blood. So, when in the morning you have um, you have a little uh, higher um, cortisol spike than you you typically have the rest of the day then that's going to affect uh, your your glucose a little bit so the hmm. but but um, but yeah you could go and set off your kids first but but you're introducing uh drop off your kids um by doing that you're exposing yourself to a lot of unknowns uh traffic and other kids and what how's your yeah. kid going to so so that the that's going to just make it more unreliable i would definitely pick a, a time fairly early um and before you go out and do some physical activity like go for a walk or something like that um just to standardize things um but but even though you try to standardize things you are going to need to have several measurements so maybe three days in a row every two weeks or maybe you do it every week and you have you're not looking at your 
uh, this week's um, fasting glucose, but maybe the last three or four weeks running average or something like that. And obviously that's where like all the new services and devices that's coming in, like, like what you've been testing out with the 24 seven glucose monitoring device, right? Yeah. The continuous glucose monitoring. It makes yeah. it a lot more convenient, but obviously those are not easy to get to, at least not here in, in, the, in Denmark where we are currently located. Right. So, yeah, so but that, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. It's, 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 you could actually just buy one on eBay or something like that uh, at this point and then download. Uh, so, buy a sensor but but of course it's not guaranteed like it's not uh, by the uh by the companies behind them uh, but it is right. it, it's getting better but yeah those are a little bit difficult to access if you're not type 1 diabetic um so, so let's get back to the protocol then so right. so we've established now that fasting glucose important in the morning and ideally before you go about your business because right. there is going to be a spike when you go about your business and cortisol rises etc yeah and or, so, or you could have a lowering from going on that walk or like you just don't know what's going to happen yeah. that's really the main point there um so it's it's straight out of bed 15 minutes later after drinking some water you take the first yeah thing. yeah so and, and then what? Yeah. So let's say you want to extend that. Now you have your your fasting, what we can also call your baseline uh, blood glucose, and you want to see how do you react to your breakfast. Now, you could also see uh, want to see how you react to other meals, but if you want to see how you react to a specific kind of carbohydrate or or, or source of carbohydrate or uh, amount or a specific meal combination, something like that then doing it at breakfast for the same reasons that I just mentioned with standardization, just make like you have pretty good control over how things are in the morning before you leave your room, your, uh, sorry, your, uh, your apartment or your house um, compared to how things are going to be at lunch at work or something like that. Um, you, so, so, so it makes sense to do it then um, if you want to do an, an extended uh, experiment. So you want to, to standardize things as much as possible. You want to make sure you have roughly the same amount of sleep and roughly the same amount of physical activity and so on. Um, you, after you've done the, you basically do the exact same thing as we just said with the, with the, to measure the fasting glucose. And then without going about and doing too much physical activity, you can walk around and cook in your apartment and so on, but don't say, do a 10-minute workout unless that's what you're testing for. Um, don't go biking or something like that. Um, then you, you, would, you would want to, uh, if, you, if you want to randomize the condition, now would be the time to do so. So you might want to, um, let's say you're testing two different meals against each other. You might want it to be random which meal you're eating that morning. In that case, you flip a coin about it. So you weigh and measure your foods. Uh, I'm assuming you've predetermined what it is you want to eat. So let's say um, you want to have 65 grams of carbohydrate from bananas. That would be, now I'm referring to an experiment I've done on myself here, so that's why I know I don't know all foods in that detail. That would be roughly 325 grams, 324 grams of bananas, as far as I remember. Um I might want to do one day where I eat banana and then one day where I also eat banana and eggs to see what's the difference in my glucose response. So I would flip a coin, say before I flip the coin, I predetermine that if it's heads, I'm going to eat eggs as well. Or if it's tails, I'm only going to eat bananas. 
it hmm. turns out it's tails. So I don't have to do a lot of weighing and measuring. I just have to weigh out the bananas, uh, 324 grams. Then I, in this case, I'm eating them raw. Otherwise, I'd have to cook them and make sure I cook them in the same way. So I write down how I cook them. And I'd think these things through beforehand. Then I've already taken my, my blood glucose just uh, maybe 10, 20 minutes before. That's fine as a baseline. I eat the bananas, make sure I write down the exact time that I start eating. I might even uh, predetermine how long I have to write them. Uh, oh, sorry, how long I have to, to eat them. So maybe I have 10 minutes. I have to eat them within 10 minutes. So you don't drag it out for like 30 minutes. That's going to probably make a difference in, in what results you're getting. Again, just to standardize. Um, and then I measure my, uh, my glucose uh, by pricking myself in the finger again at intervals of, you could, you could do just 120 minutes um, after 120 minutes, after two hours. But I, I would really recommend that you, you, there's quite a possibility that there's going to be peaks and, and so on. You're not going to catch if you do that. Um, so I'd go for 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes, 120 minutes. And if you have the time, you can continue further out. Um, but, and then again, that's minutes after you start, you took the first bite of the banana. So set some alarms on like your watch or your phone or something like that. The first bite, not after. The exactly. Last bite. Yeah. That's uh, that's, okay. uh, that's an important distinction. <laughs> and to be honest, I would go for after the first bite of a carbohydrate, like the main carbohydrate source or a carbohydrate containing foods. Um, that might be a discussion for another day, but, um, if you're, at least when I'm eating fat and protein rich meals, uh, foods, just that in and of itself has almost no effect on my blood glucose. So if I'm comparing a meal that has fat, protein, and carbohydrate versus one that's just only carbohydrate, then it's not very interesting for me to see what is the glucose response after eating the, the fat and the, the protein in and of itself, I would start recording in after I started eating the, uh, the carbohydrates. Um, so, so let me interject you here. Like, yeah, this sure. is fascinating stuff. And, and, and I want to say two things. One, one is, um, like want to spice up your experiment a little bit here with saying people shouldn't just think about doing tests with what they eat. They should also doing tests with, like for instance, going for a short, brisk walk after eating. Yeah, right? you could definitely that do that. That's very interesting. Sugar, That's right? very interesting because there are certainly a lot of hacks out there about how you can quickly lower your blood glucose levels after a meal, right? So carbs are absolutely not all bad, as some may think, and, and certainly the whole kind of keto low carb community will will, will scream about carbs <laughs> and all of that. But I'm certainly one who does enjoy. A good lump of bread from time to time made out of good sourdough. Oh, no, you don't, that. Martin. That's don't, don't say that on the podcast. <laughs> I'm guilty of the croissant <laughs> sometimes. Um, but, you know, hey, as long as you have your strategies for actually making sure that you immediately lower your blood sugar levels uh, after that. Right. And you continue this kind of low, low kind of blood sugar state, which is where you don't have cravings for food, where you don't have mood swings and where you really just have a stable energy level which for me is, is, is my goal, right? I think that that's I just want to encourage people to when they do these kind of tests, think about testing out what could lower it again, right? So, but going back, just speaking of tests in general, I, I was listening to you explaining this in the beginning and, and I'm sure some people are sitting out there thinking, oh my God, this is, 
these two guys are health nuts. They're crazy. And how is that? And that's probably true. My life. But, and, uh... Well, yeah, we are probably right. We know, but, but still what I wanted to get across with here is that as a biohacker or as somebody with this biohacking mindset, I think it is important to stress to, to people who are new to this, that this is an investment in your life and your quality for good, right? You are basically, it's like taking a class. You're teaching yourself something about how your body is reacting as a system and you're interpreting that feedback and you're reacting upon it. So I'm sure you're not doing this every day, nor am I, but I have done it for some time back in years ago, yeah. right? And it taught me a great deal about how I should kind of engineer my day and, and set up my daily routines to make sure that I have stable energy levels. Yeah, so, I think that's a good point. Would you agree with that? I'm sure yeah, you yeah, sure. You're not sure. testing. No, no, day. I'm not testing yeah. every day. No, no, I don't have I don't have time or like that would be yeah, that would be too comprehensive. But um so so definitely thoughts going out to anybody with type one diabetes who have to test every day all the time. Oh yeah. Um Hopefully they take that as an opportunity to to learn a lot about themselves. But uh, yeah, damn, that's a that's a tough one. Um, I wouldn't want to do that. Um, but yeah, no, um, yeah, I, I'm not suggesting that every, everybody or or almost anybody who, who doesn't have to uh, test every day. They're certainly not. Um, you 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 said some some interesting things. Um, you you were. You were saying that uh, one of the things you could also test for was, for instance, what effect does it have if you if you do some physical activity after you're, you've eaten? And uh, yeah, no, that's mm. definitely uh, that's a good point. That's definitely a thing that's also worth testing. Um, and that's also why I was just what I was trying to say before with uh, not going on a walk and so on was just that. You only want to do that if that's what you want to see the effect of. Is that what that is what you're testing? Um, yeah. So otherwise, don't do it because it's going to um, it's definitely going to have an effect on your blood glucose, or at least it, that, that's definitely what I'm seeing. Uh, that if you eat a, a high carbohydrate meal and then you go for a walk, then you see this um, break. If you're wearing a, a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor. Um, you definitely see a, a break in the in, in the curve. It just uh, stops rising um, for for the uh, the time that you're you're walking. And that's again, that's just going on a walk. That's not even going to do sprint intervals on the the uh, stationary bike or or anything uh, more intensive. Uh, that definitely has an effect, and that's very interesting to have a have a look at. Uh, that's one of the things that especially. Uh, a continuous Google's monitor is good to to for playing around with that sort of stuff. Here the conversation simply got sidetracked and once we got back on track we were discussing ketogenic diets for glucose regulation. So I'll let you hear the rest of the conversation now. I'm one of those guys who definitely have done lots of tests and, and uh, you know this summer I competed in a uh, half an Ironman and I, I was I was the guy sitting in the transition zone pricking my finger and doing blood testing and all of that. Now, I didn't test blood glucose, though. I did so in the morning, and I was, you know, absolutely fine in there. But I was testing my, my ketones. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you, Frederick, is this, this world of keto, right? And there's lots of hype around in Tour de France and other sports where people are really moving towards this kind of high-fat or at least ketogenic uh, way of living, especially when doing endurance sports. So can you tell me a little bit about keto from your perspective and how this is relevant for 
like blood glucose and, and the world of, of low coppers out there. Right, right. So just for anybody who for for some reason don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about ketogenic diets. So that means a diet that is low enough in carbohydrate that it facilitates the body producing increased amounts of what's called ketone bodies. Ketone bodies are these molecules, there are three of them that we can can make uh, that to some extent could go in and replace uh, your blood sugar um, when, when blood sugar can't be kept high enough um, or, or sugar in, in the brain especially can't be kept high enough. So normally the, the, the brain runs um, on, on glucose. And we have a little bit of these ketone bodies that are made from fat. Uh, we always have a little bit of them, um, but it but mainly runs on glucose. So when glucose is scarce in the body, and because carbohydrate is scarce in the in the diet, then the body facilitates a higher production of um, of these ketone bodies that can then go in and replace some of that glucose. So this is basically a very low carbohydrate diet. Um, and yeah, that's definitely, that's one way of going about uh, controlling blood glucose, simply eating so little carbohydrate that you, um, that, you switch to uh, another energy source, basically. Yeah, that you, you partially switch to another energy source. Um, and uh, that can work. And it's not as scary as it's sometimes made out to be, but it's, in my opinion, not uh, a panacea and uh, it's it, it is a fairly extreme diet. It is you're you're excluding or severely limiting a, a large group of, uh, of plant foods in order to uh, to reach this uh, very low uh, carbohydrate intake. And I think the way I think about it is, if you want to do it, if you want to try it out, fine, go ahead, do it. Um, but but make sure you know about the different pitfalls and how to just sort of optimize and do it the right way first. Um, but secondly, don't feel like you have to do it. There's definitely other ways that can be very effective uh, and that are way easier at um, for for regulating blood sugar and uh, yeah. and attenuating uh, large rises in blood glucose. And there are also drawbacks. There are things you have to work around when you're doing a keto diet, and there are effects on your physiology. And some of them can be good, and uh, some of them are a little speculative. Um, and some of them are probably not so good. Um, I, I definitely agree, Frederick. And I, I want to comment on this because, I, as you know, I've been on keto for yeah, several years. Yeah, you're a little bit the keto guy sometimes. <laughs> well, I, have, I, I was up until a couple of years ago, and I kind of switched from being all full-on keto and, and lived with uh, some of the issues that that produced, as, as you just alluded to, uh, you know, socially as well as, you know, physically and, and right. biochemistry-wise, there was a there was a kind of a not so good effect on me when it comes to keto, but from a kind of transition standpoint, it was awesome. Now, what I was actually testing before during the, the Ironman was how I reacted to doing these kind of exercises in, in a fasted state, which I was going to comment on. You could read very high levels of, of a ketogenic state, like what they called um, um, uh, almost like therapeutical keto state just by fasting. Right. Right. And, and then you could you could still go about eating your whole meal at night. And because your system is so fine tuned and, and your cells are ready to absorb what they need to absorb and your insulin levels are absolutely optimal. You know, you can eat a whole bunch of carbs at night and get up in the morning and you'll still be, you know, within the normal range and optimal range of, of blood sugar. Right. 
yeah a lot of people really... a lot of people can definitely do that and, and benefit a lot yeah. from uh from having some sort of intermittent fasting uh, approach um where exactly. so you have a, a period of, of not eating which of course is will achieve you the lowest amount of carbohydrate intake that you can being meaning zero um yeah um and that will sometimes bring you into into ketosis uh depending on how high your how long the fasting period is and your how 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 much glucose you have to store glycogen you have stored away um yeah so um yeah so ketogenic dieting it's a tool you can use it um I don't know if we should go into to too much detail or too much more detail. Let's do another here. episode on keto. Let's do another one on, on keto and, yeah. and who who and when you should do that. Okay, so let's uh, let's move on. So so we talked a little bit about what influences glucose levels, but I, I'd like to talk a little yeah. bit more about it. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. So, so so let's save keto for another day yeah. and let's talk more about well. So glucose how do you actually control it one thing is what you eat right that that's obvious and you can test various meals and you know compositions of meals etc but i know you've done some really interesting testing based on a study you, you read where you kind of swap protein and carbs and, and kind of you know rearrange things uh compared to what would be the normal order like the classic is uh, I've certainly heard some podcasts where people are saying, well, don't eat your, your bread at a restaurant until the end of your meal, right? So why is that, Frederick? Can you tell me about okay, that? Okay, so that, that's, uh, that's definitely important, yeah. So um, so let's start with what, what influences glucose levels. So obviously, there's a lot of different things, and we've just touched on some of them. Um, um, but uh, basically, I, I want to mention a couple more. Uh, so one of the things that's really important is the amount of carbohydrate in the meal. That definitely um, has an effect for, for 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 everybody basically on on how their glucose blood glucose looks afterwards. Um, other things that that um, that influence it includes things like protein content of the meal. Uh, once you get above high thirties, forty grams of, of protein uh, per meal, you you see uh, an attenuation in in the blood uh, glucose response um fat content and eating vegetables with your uh, with your meal also also has an uh, attenuating effect meaning you the, the glucose doesn't rise as much as if you were to eat the same amount of carbohydrate um isolated uh, that is only eating the carbohydrate so adding fat adding water adding protein actually even alcohol um to your uh, to your meal um, or as we'll touch on, I think vinegar uh, um, can all uh, attenuate a rise in uh, in blood glucose um, levels. Yeah, that that's an interesting one. Vinegar. It's I mean, I, every morning I I drink a teaspoon of, or a tablespoon actually of apple cider vinegar. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a that's a somewhat studied approach. Um, Mm-hmm. It, it seems to be that it's the uh, the acetic acid, uh, so that's uh, basically the the acid in vinegar um, that that has an effect. Meaning, it does probably. Um, I can't it should I, stabilize, right? It, it, it should it should help stabilize or, or lower blood glucose, um, but it, it's there's there there are some studies on it. There's a I don't know, 10, 15 studies I was able to find. Um, not all studies shows that it work, and it doesn't seem to work in all people equally. And um, 
and with all meals equally. So this is kind of interesting. It's mm. not it's not a when you look at the literature, it's not a, a totally established thing, but it does seem to it does seem to work um, for starch meals. So let's say potatoes or uh, or rice or something like that. That seems to produce when you eat. If you, if you take 10 to 30 grams or milliliters of, of vinegar, uh, so say, let's say apple cider vinegar or white wine vinegar um, with that meal, then the glucose response to that is is lowered compared to not just eating the same amount of rice without, uh, without the vinegar. Mm. However, when you, there's been a couple of studies where they look at uh, mono or disaccharides. So these very simple sugars we're talking about before. So you're eating pure glucose, for instance, or most of what you'd get from fruit, for instance. And I haven't been able to find any studies there that support that vinegar can lower the glucose response to that. Uh, there's been at least, I saw at least one where they saw they were feeding pure uh, dextrose. Again, that's that's glucose. Um, and they're comparing that to starch. And um, when they gave vinegar with the starch, it lowered the blood glucose, uh, but not with the dextrose. They didn't really see any effect there. Um, it should also be said that there's definitely a, a uh, there's a um, low dose that wouldn't work. Let's, let's say you're down around, you probably want at least 10 grams for it to work. And it may actually, there may actually be a, an, um, a, a top out uh, dose. You probably don't want more than like 30 grams. You don't, uh, I saw a study with 50 grams where it didn't work at least. Um, not sure why hmm. um and that's an, that brings us to another thing the mechanism doesn't seem to be fully um elucidated um we don't know for sure why it works it may be slowing gastric emptying so the the rate at which the the, the partially digested food passes from the uh from the um uh, the stomach and into the small intestine where the carbohydrates are absorbed into the blood um that may be slower and that would result in a, in a, in a slower, um, a lower glucose curve and more, uh, less of a spike. Um, that doesn't really explain why it works with starch and maybe not with simple sugars. A mm. suggested, uh, mechanism is that the acetic acid, so the acid in vinegar, suppresses amylase activity so that's amylase is are these is this uh this group of enzymes um that break down starch and we need the starch to be broken down and normally this happens pretty efficiently in most people um breaks down into glucose and then it's taken up as i said from the walls of the small intestine into the bloodstream if that breakdown happens at a slower rate because amylase activity is suppressed uh by the uh, acetic acid then that would uh, you would expect to see what you see in in, in these studies with a um, an attenuated glucose curve after the meal. Um, see, this this is brilliant, Frederick, because I think the I mean the many many people out there who are just after the easy route to a healthy life, right? And they may jump on a juicing diet and they go juice a whole bunch of vegetables, and it's great. I mean, that obviously they're getting more vegetables than most people, right? And they blend it all up and all of that. But if they are not aware of these little hacks, quote unquote, that actually could benefit them even further. I mean, these, these are brilliant examples of, like in my own life, 
my smoothies that I that I consume like late in the afternoon as my first meal of the day, not only do they contain all these wonderful greens and all of that, but I'm always adding apple cider vinegar for the exact reason you mentioned there, right? It's to it's to stimulate that, you know, kind of enzyme production so that I can deal with the, the breakdown process much, much more efficiently, right? But there are other things that I'm not sure we're gonna go into it like, but there are other, although probably minor studies on things like pistachios or almonds or cinnamon or linseeds or all sorts of foods that obviously in, in kind of ancient, um, you know, uh, I guess nutritional advice has been used for this purpose. And now we are getting around to, with the easy access to testing these things, more and more people are kind of quote unquote coming out being biohackers and, and saying, well, I construct my meal this way. And actually I can now demonstrate that my blood glucose levels remain stable, mm. right? So when you talk about studies and dextrose and dextrose, sorry, and, and some of those very refined studies where you're like, it's it's kind of like almost too siloed in my mind, where you you're you're lacking the whole fiber content of the meal, you're lacking a lot of the other yeah, things. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so let's let's just give people a couple of um, easy, fairly um, workable. Uh, let's call them hacks for in yes, lieu of a better word um, that, 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 that seems to work for most people that uh, to, to control their, their blood glucose. So of course, overall, you want to live a fairly healthy lifestyle. You want to eat, limit or avoid most processed foods, overly processed foods, let's call it that, right? The more processed your carbohydrate sources are, the faster absorption is generally going to be, meaning you're going to see more of a blood glucose spike. So you want to lead in general, you want to eat less processed foods. You want to be physically active, as you were alluding to earlier, or you were talking about uh, going for just a walk or doing some real high intensity uh, uh, training right before or after your meal is also going to mean that more of the glucose is going to be uh, ending up in your, your skeletal muscle. And it also means that you're going to see less of a spike generally in, in your, your blood glucose. And, and it's going to go down faster, which is also one of the, the, the things we want. It's going to be returned to baseline faster. Um, beyond that, um, then eat, make sure you eat sufficient protein, eat some low uh, calorie plants. So basically what you'd normally call vegetables. So broccoli, tomatoes, cucumber, uh, spinach, whatever. Um, and eat your protein and um, your fat and your vegetables first, if you can manage it, and then eat your carbohydrate, main carbohydrate sources after. Uh, that's going to help attenuate. Now, I'm going to, that's, uh, I like that small, in my opinion, easy tip so much that I'm going to do a whole separate episode on that um, and the study. So I'm going to delve into that. Don't worry. Uh, but but that's, a, that's a quick one. Eat your carbohydrates last. Yeah, I look forward to that. Yeah. So, and, and then again, one of the things that just consistently, at least to some extent, predicts how, how high your rising blood glucose is going to be is the amount of carbohydrate you eat in a meal. So this is one of the places where testing comes really comes in, in my opinion, that you want to make sure that you don't eat more carbohydrate than you can handle. So you want to implement some of the good lifestyle practices and practices around eating, like eating your carbohydrates last, making sure you eat enough vegetables and protein, making sure you're physically active, making sure you get enough sleep. Um, and all that sort of stuff, and, and you're not overly stressed and so on. But beyond that, if you're, you've implemented those things and you're still seeing high rises in blood glucose after, uh, after eating, let's say, 
above seven or eight uh, millimoles per liter or after two hours you're you haven't returned to baseline your fasting levels or your fasting levels are pretty high most of the time then you might want to look into especially um um well, i was going to say especially if you're a normal weight but uh, but that's just because i mean if you are not normal if you have a if you're overweight you want to address that as well um then you want to look into well what happens if I, how, how much carbohydrate do I actually eat in a day and, uh, and in a meal? And then you might want to lower that, uh, the amount of carbohydrate you eat per meal, um, and, and per day in order in, until you get to, uh, um, a point where, uh, where you can control it. Um, so this is definitely where one, a situation where personalization of, of just the amount and, and to some extent the type, um, becomes, becomes important, I think. And what are other hacks that, that, I mean, I mentioned cinnamon before and, and pistachios and linseeds, and there's lots of these uh, things flowing yeah, around. Yeah, so cinnamon's a real, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of different um, things that are not what you should start with. I don't even think vinegar is one you should start with. I think that's one of the ones you should test out. I want to emphasize the other stuff. I just mentioned sure, that, yeah. that that's like the those, basics. Those are indeed the that's basics. That's the ones yeah. that really work and that like most people can do. But let's uh, so so vinegar is definitely one of those that seems to work, and and, and you can uh, test that out, and but it, it works better in in people who have more severe uh, uh, dyslipidemia, so less less uh, control of the blood glucose. Cinnamon is another one that's been suggested. Uh, so I looked at into the, uh, the the literature on that, and it's mixed as well and um it's a little bit more inconsistent the results than than vinegar is um the so so when the studies typically use anywhere from one to six grams of cinnamon with a carb heavy meal so rice pudding or uh, oatmeal maybe or something like that and in some cases, they see uh, a decrease in the um, glucose and insulin response to the the carbohydrate meals. But but there are also some of the studies that, and sometimes the 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 uh, the, the way the study is conducted is actually similar. That doesn't really produce these uh, these differences. So it's not quite clear that the effect is actually there. It may have to do with the dose, and it may have to be people who are. So the dose, dose may have to be pretty high at around uh, six grams rather than one or three grams um, of ground cinnamon. Um, and the, uh, the, the, the participants may have to be people, again, who are uh, uh, overweight diabetics and have pretty poorly controlled glucose. So they might have to be pretty bad before you can use this. And it, like to this point where you probably it should be, uh, be taking medication. Interesting. Um, six grams is a lot, though. I mean, it's just it's a lot, and and it, it really is with cinnamon because the cinnamon that's used in most of these studies is the cassia cinnamon. That's the the common cinnamon. It's uh, it's the supposedly not true variant uh, as opposed to uh, Ceylon. Yeah, it's the cheap one, right? Yeah. Ceylon cinnamon is the is the true cinnamon, and and cassia cinnamon, which is the one that has been shown at least in some studies with some populations to have an effect. Um, is in these six grams uh, doses is um, that's a high dose because uh, cashew cinnamon contains a lot of what's called coumarin. Yeah. Um, this was uh, really up in the news a couple of years ago here in, in Denmark um, because we have these uh, buns the with cinnamon, cinnamon buns, that we yeah. eat, especially yeah, especially for 
uh, Christmas, we eat a lot of cinnamon, and but also, but also other times of the year. And it actually turns out the so the European uh, Union, some some commission had um, had been looking at well, what are safe levels because cumarin is uh, is a liver toxin. Um, what what what's what are safe levels that people can eat? Uh, and especially, um, and, and they're actually quite low if you look at a chronic intake, if you eat it every day. Um, so it can be as low for an adult as a 1.4 or even maybe down to, if you're a small adult, one gram a day of ground cassia cinnamon. And so you obviously can't eat six grams a day, right? If if uh, if the safety to, uh, threshold is like one gram a day, it's, it's less for a, a kid. It can be down to like half a gram. Um, so I think that's one thing we have to, I mean, I was going to say we have to abandon the idea of using cinnamon for glucose control. You could look into doing a self-experiment with Ceylon cinnamon, which has a lot less, um, has a lot less coumarin. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the level is, uh, and I'm not sure if it would work or not for glucose control because it doesn't seem, I couldn't find any studies where I was sure that that was the source that had been used. But that might be look, worth looking into um, if you really like cinnamon and you need to control your blood glucose better. But to be honest, I think it's a little bit of a, uh, a red, red uh, not a red herring. Uh, it's a, yeah. a dead end. Uh, I, I would go look at other things. Um, yeah, I'm definitely going to test that one out when I when I get my 24 uh, seven blood glucose monitor because I think it I I love cinnamon and I eat it a lot and I I used it. In I like cinnamon too, by the way. Just, I'm not a cinnamon hater. Years, but but six grams. I'm pretty sure I'm not adding six grams. So I'm actually I'm glad. Yeah, you this is this from, oh, yeah, this is that. this is quite quite a lot, right? Yeah. Like uh, that's a cinnamon challenge level. It's going to be I a think. cinnamon smoothie, not a green smoothie. Then it's going to taste like <laughs> I don't know what. But I'll, it's going to taste like Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Um, interesting so that's cinnamon i'm I'm glad we got to cover that one um yeah so vinegar worth trying out if you want to do it with starchy meals at least maybe not so much with sugary meals cinnamon let's find a better way we we've got better tools right so we've established a couple of 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 hacks which may or may not be effective and really want to encourage people to go and test them out themselves right and i certainly want to do the the cinnamon one and, and see whether that's for real something that um that helps or whether I've just been, you know, adding cinnamon for no reason to my smoothies. Although but make sure to use the Ceylon but, cinnamon. Yeah. Oh, I yeah, okay. always do. Okay. Yeah. So, so in, in Danish for those listening in, it would be the ekte kani. So true yeah, cinnamon. Yeah, That's yeah. the one you yeah. want to go the, for. The expensive one, basically. So, yeah, yeah, so surprised that it's the expensive one that might be the safest one. Well, there you go. <laughs> Health is not cheap. Um, but on the other hand, it may be worth the investment. So you got to figure that out yourself. But one of the things that um, that I wanted to ask you about, Frederick, since since I have you here on on uh, on this kind of direct access to the science, pretty much, um, is I've noticed when it comes to sleep that I obviously I can kind of guess why that is, but uh, I actually sleep better if I have less. Sorry, if I if I a have some carbs at night and b. Obviously, I don't want to have um, too short time between my meal and going to sleep. So ideally, like two, probably more like three hours than I sleep best. So tell me about the relation between sleep, melatonin, glucose. Ooh, and yeah, that's probably also a whole podcast in and of itself. It's definitely complicated and and not 100% um, something that's uh, that's 100% figured out. But but there are definitely uh, def- definitely some connections. Um, so one of the things that, um, 
sleep seem or sorry <laughs> carbohydrates seem to be able to uh, to some extent, um, in, induce sleep. And this is probably, uh, because, um, carbohydrates facilitate, um, uptake of, of, uh, tryptophan and amino acid, uh, into the brain at a right. higher, higher rate, which, uh, allows for, uh, downstream for, for, for melatonin production. So melatonin is a hormone, which we, it's, 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 it's a sleep like hormone. That. Um, yeah, let's keep it. It's, it's a short version. It's a sleep hormone which um, which induces uh, sleep in the brain. So what it does is its role in in inducing sleep is to tell your body that hey, it's dark outside. It's nighttime. Humans like you are usually not very active when it's dark, uh, as opposed to mice, for example. Um, so you better uh, you better just get drowsy and. Um, and, and get ready to to sleep. Um, it also we also have, and this brings us to the to the the other one of the other things you you mentioned. We also have melatonin receptors, not just in our brain, but also in the beta cells of our pancreas. So the beta cells of our pancreas produce insulin, um, and and insulin, as we we talked about, has this really important role in, in glucose variation uh, control uh, of of bringing glucose blood glucose down. Um, when we have increased uh, melatonin levels because let's say it's dark outside or maybe you've taken a melatonin supplement then uh, melatonin goes into the brain tells the brain that you, you need to, to go to bed but it also tells the pancreas to go to bed uh, to not release as much uh, insulin so this means that if you eat you were saying you don't want to eat your food or in your carbs too late in the evening that doesn't feel good um, well, one of the reasons could be that you probably have um, a, a more extreme um, response to those carbohydrates in um, if if you take them late in the in in the evening um, when it's when mm -hmm. it's dark outside and you have some uh, rise in melatonin because you don't produce as much insulin uh, given given that the, uh, the the beta cells are being uh, um, stimulated by by melatonin on, on the melatonin receptor, so that's uh -huh. pretty interesting, I think. Um, so very carefully, I want to propose that people eat less of their carbohydrates very late in the evening, and that's going to, to depend on the amount of late is going to depend on the amount of light that they're being exposed to, um, and possibly right when you get up in the morning you could still have some lingering melatonin uh, and so so carbohydrate might actually be and this is something that's probably going to be individual and i'm not sure about this but probably it's the best time to eat most of your carbohydrates going to be in the middle of the day we should test that we should probably test that out and I, i'm guessing there's probably going to be quite a, a lot of uh, individual variation and um it's it's uh, especially if you don't standardize the photo period uh the um, that is the, the period during the 24-hour period that uh, you're being exposed to to bright light um this is definitely speculation right to some extent yeah but but because the the melatonin interfering with the release of insulin from your cat pancreas you're saying that in the middle of the day you would be uh that, that will be the most optimal time to 
basically quickly process your carbs. Yeah, you're right. probably going to have the highest uh, release of insulin uh, to the same amount of carbohydrate at that point. So you're going to be best able to handle it, right? Um, yeah, there, there's some there's some uh, experimental uh, support for this. Um, we we I, I looked at a study the other day. There's a, a Sevi et al. 2015 where they also saw that. Um, the amount of time that had passed since sleep after around five to six hours, after five or six hours um, of being awake, they the longer time that passed, so the more than those five to six hours, the higher blood glucose response people had to the same meal. Uh, but this was not directly what they were testing. So this is just uh, this is just an association. We can't say that it was causal, but. Um, but that, but uh, yeah, there's some. It, um, it's not pure speculation. But uh, so five. Let's say if I get up in the, so the best, the best, uh, best time compared, or depending on, according to that data, would be something like, uh, four hours after waking, which I get up at around seven. So that means around 11 o'clock would probably be the optimal time for me. And then before that would be a little bit worse. And after that, a little bit worse. And that gets worse and worse going in both directions. That's speculative as well. But that would be interesting to, to try out and test to see if, uh, if that has an effect. So Martin, what, what, um, how have you implemented some of these things? I know you've also been, uh, been looking into this and, and doing some, some periods of ketogenic dieting as well. Um, what does your day look like with, uh, if we take the blood glucose control, um, glasses on? I guess first establishing that my goal with doing this is longevity, right? Living a long and healthy life and, you know, don't get any nasty diseases on the way. Right. And, and my goal. I think looking from some of these blue zone studies that, you know, having a stable blood sugar level throughout the day is, seems to be correlated with, with exactly my goals. Right. So for that reason, I have for years been, as you mentioned, uh, experimenting quite a bit with keto. And a couple of years ago, I kind of stopped that and went more into intermittent fasting. And that is how I personally keep my blood sugar levels stable. Um, it's introduced a lot more flexibility in my life, uh, in the, in the sense of before I had an issue kind of going out for a, a normal meal and because I felt guilty, right. For, you know, eating carbs, for instance. Right. And I've certainly tested a lot about, well, what, like we discussed here, what can you do to, uh, construct your meals so that there's less of an impact on it. Right. So for instance, if I go for a brunch, it happens usually in association with a walk after the brunch, right? So I know I'm going to eat some sourdough bread. That's okay. I'm not stressed out about that. I'm just going to go for a walk after that. And I feel fine and I don't have the cravings. Whereas if I evade a lump of bread at home, I know because of my experience that I'm going to eat more bread later in the day, simply because, you know, my blood sugar levels will keep, it'll be elevated for, for longer periods because I'm not doing anything to lower them. So testing this and experimenting with it certainly has taught me a great deal about how to keep and, and kind of maintain a low-ish level of, of blood sugar. So that, I mean, fasting and then, you know, occasionally having a meal which does include more carbs than, than normal, that's, uh, that's my main deal. And then, as you know, my, my afternoon smoothie, when I break my fast, it usually doesn't have a lot of carbs and I do a whole lot to um, add some of these kind of natural hacks, you know, 
almonds, pistachios, wild greens, and you know, stinging nettle, and whatever else I can throw in there that that is in some studies been shown to also help downregulate the the blood glucose. So, so that's that's kind of my day. Yeah, and for uh, anybody who, who obviously doesn't know, then Martin's uh, Martin's smoothie is quite a, quite the monster. It's a very thick green smoothie with wild plants from his uh, from his garden and whatever he can get his hands on, and lots of herbs and different goodies as he he was just talking about yeah, it is a beast uh, and there's a reason why it's thick i mean we talked earlier about the importance of of the acidic content in the meal and like the stimulation of the right enzymes to break down your meal right and that's exactly why it's thick because then it, it forces me to chew it not just drink it like a juice but i'm actually i'm chewing my smoothies so anyway how about you frederick what's your experience right yeah well I mean, my experience has really been and been testing quite a lot recently is uh, protein really works. It works to control uh, blood glucose. If I eat uh, if I eat protein before I eat carbohydrates um, in the same meal, uh, it controls my hunger. It controls my uh, dampens my 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 cravings for sweets definitely. Uh, so that also has some basically some indirect effects you could say on on blood glucose if you eat less uh sweets and eat less overall then you're also going to have less uh less excursions of uh smaller excursions of blood glucose um as i as i also mentioned before eating just fat and protein without any carbohydrates that just barely registers in my blood glucose like if i just eat eggs for instance or what could it be um eggs is a good example i just don't really see and the same goes for black coffee for instance i just don't see uh a spike in, in glucose from, from that. That's just been my experience. I can't say that that goes for everybody. And I think some people it would stimulate their, uh, their cortisol to a large enough degree that they might see something, but I just, I can't register anything there. Um, physical activity after meals, uh, just going for a walk or something or a bike, uh, just like transport, uh, from, from one place to another. Um, that definitely attenuates any rise. Uh, if I just eaten some carbohydrates in, in my, uh, in my blood sugar. Um, and, and just another experience has been that there just is a large, um, degree of variation when you measure blood glucose and, and, um, even taking the same, taking two glucometers and, uh, measuring at the same time. So like within 10 seconds of mm. each other and the same finger and so on still produces, uh, quite some variation sometimes. And, uh, so you just do need to have more measurements if you want to extract knowledge from the data you're collecting. And look at the trends, not the individual. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Well, that's interesting, Frederick. So you, um, I mean, obviously we both have our different protocols, but there's some overlap in it. And I hope people will, will take some of this away and try and implement in their own lives and, and certainly dip, uh, dip their toes in this kind of self-quantification world. Um, but what, let's just summarize this a bit from from a highlight standpoint let's let's take it through uh from the beginning what is it that you want people to to walk sure. over today so so what's really important to get from this podcast is that blood sugar is an important marker um looking at your long-term health uh it it impacts uh, all-cause mortality it impacts cardiovascular disease it impacts uh, morbidities of different sorts um and of course, therefore, it also impacts your quality of life. And this really goes for everybody. It doesn't start magically when you hit the threshold to type 2 diabetes or the threshold to 
to uh, pre-diabetes, it really seems to be important for everybody that they have uh, a good glucose control um, and, 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 and look into these things. Um, and the follow-up to that is that the blood sugar can be regulated quite effectively through diet and lifestyle. Um, I'm not saying that nobody should take medication or anything like that. I'm just saying that everybody who wants to, to live a healthier life should, uh, should have a look at, um, at doing some pretty simple things. Don't eat a lot of highly processed foods, definitely. Um, especially highly processed carbohydrate rich foods, measure your glucose levels eat enough protein and vegetables um, and eat them before you eat your carbohydrates, get enough sleep. Um, don't consistently overeat. I'm not going to say never overeat, but be an energy balance. So if you have extra body fat more than you, you should have from a health standpoint, you should engage with that. You should, you should do something to lose that. And then part of that could be regulating your, uh, your carbohydrate and calorie intake. Um, be physically active, especially around meal times, like just before or after is, is, is pretty good for attenuating, um, glucose rises. And, um, and, and again, as we said, measure your levels and then adjust your carbohydrate intake to and a, a level that you can handle. Um, and you of course need to, and that's going with regards to the, the, the keto guys, um, try to balance the, your micronutrient needs from plants. So the, the micronutrients that you typically get from plants with limiting carbohydrates. So on the one hand, eating less carbohydrate rich plants means easier control blood glucose. But on the other hand, there's a lot of really valuable micronutrients and, and, uh, and other compounds and plants that you want to get. Um, and, um, and if you eat too low carbohydrate, that's going to be really difficult to get a sufficient amounts of those. So you need mm -hmm. to balance those things out. So that's, that's, I think that's, those are the, the, the main takeaways um, and what I really want to convey to people. Well, this has been interesting and I've, I've learned some stuff here, Frederick, that certainly I'm going to take away and, and dive into a bit deeper. And I, I look forward to, to recording the next episode with you, where hopefully we'll dive in, uh, equally on, on something like ketos, other things that people probably have on mind. That sounds really good, Martin. Thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to, uh, help me out with this today. Well, thank you for, for geeking out on it. I love it. Cool. All right. Talk to you next time. That was it for this episode. Next episode will be the promised elaboration on the effect of the order in which you eat your foods on your blood sugar. Thanks again to Martin for participating and thank you for making it to the end of the episode. Let me know your thoughts and until next time, take care of yourself.